you take out your Bibles with me? Let's open them up to the book of Romans in chapter 7. The book of Romans in chapter 7. Lord willing, this is our final Lord's Day in our current study of Romans 5, 6, and 7. Uh, Lord willing, uh, this morning service and then in the evening service, uh, we will wrap up our study of these chapters. Uh, I do hope that they've been beneficial to you and a blessing to you. Um, I pray that they've clarified things, that they've benefited your soul. Very soon, I'm not sure exactly how soon, but very soon, uh, we will be moving to Genesis to uh, wrap up our study of that book uh, with the life of Joseph. And so we will be entering into the life of this 17-year-old boy and watch as he grows and as God does some really incredible things through him. And I think that will be a very encouraging and edifying time for us uh, as well. Uh, let's begin reading Romans 7, beginning in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13. Did that which is good... He's speaking of the law, by the way. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin." For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Over the last several months, we've been in Romans 5, 6, 7. Over these months, we've been learning about personal holiness. The truth that Christ has saved us for holiness. Those who have been made right with God by faith in Jesus are to live as holy people. However, the last thing I want for us is to begin thinking about the Christian life only in terms of of this fight for holiness. Um, if we think that the Christian life that we are living is only about this fight for holiness, we miss the bigger picture. We need to remember that the Paul who is writing to us in Romans 5, 6, and 7 
about living holy and obedient lives is the same Paul who is going from town to town putting his life on the line for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Remember, one of the main reasons Paul was even writing the church in Rome is to ask for their help in getting the good news of Jesus into Spain. Friends, the Christian life is not just about pursuing holiness. It's about pursuing holiness in the context of living for the fame of King Jesus. If we pursue holy lives while being unconcerned about the lost around us, if we pursue holy lives while not being passionate and intentional and helping to get the gospel to those who need it most, we're not really pursuing holiness at all. Holiness means loving God, and holiness means loving others. And so if we're not actively seeking to live in a way that gets the glory of God to be seen by others, both around the world and in our own neighborhoods, we can't really say that we're pursuing holiness. So don't miss that the fact that Romans 5, 6, and 7 come in this, in this missional context. Don't get content in a life of fighting for personal holiness while millions around you die and go to hell, blind to the Savior who is worthy of their worship and love. Living a life of, of mission intensity, wanting the glory of God to be seen, and living a life pursuing personal holiness, these are not two separate warring things. No, these things are best friends. These things should be together in your life. A concern for personal holiness concern for the glory of God being tasted and seen in the world around you. Now we've already seen Paul's main point in this passage. It's verse 12. We've seen it again and again. The law is holy. The law of God is good. The law of God is better than gold, sweeter than honey. The law of God is a gift to us for our good, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. The main thing that Paul has been getting at in Romans 7 is love the law of God. Luther referred to the law of God as a stick. Before we were saved, God used the law of God as a stick that beat us down and drove us to Christ. Now that we are saved, that same stick becomes a cane that we lean on a stick that helps us walk the Christian life. The reason why the human race has run into trouble with God's law is not because there's anything wrong with God's law. God's standards of morality are good. God's standards of morality, summarized in the Ten Commandments, summarized in love God, love your neighbor, these are good and righteous standards. Our trouble with the law comes not because there's anything wrong with the law. It's because there's something greatly wrong with us as a human race. Namely, what we saw back in Romans 3. We are wicked. We are twisted and bent. We are depraved and evil. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we must rely on Jesus for salvation. It is Jesus who saves us from the condemnation of the law. Now, 
as Paul is teaching this truth, that the law is good, along the way he introduces us to another truth. This is not the main point. We've already seen the main point. But this is a very important point. And it is one that is worthy of our time. In these verses, we not only have the doctrine that the law of God is good, but we are also introduced to the doctrine of indwelling sin. In these verses, we learn that even after we are born again, given a new heart, converted to Christ, there remains indwelling sin in our lives. Look at how Paul brings this to our attention. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So as we saw last Sunday night, Paul was saying there's something internal that shows that we deep down know that the law of God is good. When, when we commit a sin and we feel shame or guilt for that sin, when we know we've done something we didn't want to do, we prove that deep down we agree that God's law is good. I, I used one illustration last week. I'll use a, a different one this morning. Suppose in a moment you lose your temper. And in this moment of wicked anger, you begin to curse. And you not only curse, but you even go so far as to begin using God's name in vain. Now, almost as soon as you use God's name in this moment of anger and irreverence, you regret having just said that. You realize what you've done. Almost immediately, you begin to feel bad about what you just said. This isn't the kind of person you want to be. You've just done the very kind of thing you hate. Well, in that moment, when you're having those feelings of regret and shame, you are showing that God's law, the law that says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, you're acknowledging that you think that's a good law, that you think that's right. If you disagreed with God's law, you wouldn't feel ashamed. If you thought it was okay to take God's name in vain, you would not regret what you have just said. There would be no moment of shame in your life. And so the very fact that you're, that you're grieving over what you've just done shows that deep down you know God's law is good. So that's verse 16, but now notice what Paul does in verse 17 and how it connects. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul makes this distinction between himself, the I who loves God's law and wants to keep it, and the sin that is within him. Right? Do you see that phrase, the sin that dwells within me, verse 17? That is where Christians get the phrase, indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is that sin which remains in believers even after they are saved. Though the Christian has a new heart, though the Christian has new desires, there is still this remaining sin within us which wars against these new desires. We see this again taught in verse 20. Verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
And so twice Paul speaks of this indwelling sin in a believer's life. And so what I want to do from these verses today is unpack this doctrine of indwelling sin under four headings. First, the reality of indwelling sin in believers. Second, the essence of indwelling sin in believers. Third, the power of indwelling sin in believers. And fourth, the remedy for indwelling sin in believers. And so what we'll do is we'll look at each of these headings, both this morning and then into tonight, and we'll draw out some implications as we do. So let's begin with the reality of indwelling sin in believers. And I'm going to venture a guess that it comes as no surprise to you to learn that Christians continue to struggle with sin in their lives. I would venture that you know this. And if you're a believer, you know it well. Every Christian has this struggle. But why is it that Christians struggle with sin? Well, I suppose there are some who might suggest that the reasons that Christians still struggle with sin, the reasons are all external. That is, there have been some in the past who believed that Christians can reach an inward state of perfection in this life. They believe that in this life, a Christian can have a heart made perfect and pure in every way. And these folks might reason that the only reason Christians still continue to sin once they've reached that state is because of the outward effects of this world. It is the temptations of the devil. It is the influence of the world that brings these Christians into sin. But inwardly, these Christians are pure. Inwardly, these Christians are blameless. They are simply brought into sin by the devil or this unholy world. Well, the doctrine of indwelling sin teaches that Christians do not reach a state of inward perfection in this life. Even the most mature Christians, those of such a stature as Paul himself, will continue to struggle with inward temptations throughout this life. The influence of the world is powerful. And the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. But the Christian's greatest enemy in this life is not the world, nor even Satan himself. It is our own flesh. The greatest enemy we must war against is this indwelling sin within our own hearts that would lead us away from following the Lord Jesus Christ. I've shown you that Paul teaches this in verses 17 and 20, but we noted last Sunday night that some people don't believe Paul is speaking here of Christians. They believe he's speaking of unbelievers. So let me show you that the rest of the Bible does indeed teach this truth, that Christians must fight indwelling sin, that indwelling sin is a reality in the life of even the most mature believers. And all we have to do is think, of the greatest heroes of the Christian faith in the pages of Scripture. Think of those men and women that the Bible holds before us as the holiest who ever lived. These were true men and women of faith, and yet what do we see? 
Each and every one of them knew what it was to battle sinful desires in their own hearts, even as they sought to follow God. Think of Abraham. Abraham is lifted up in the Bible as the preeminent man of faith, the man willing to leave his own homeland, be a pilgrim in a strange land because God called him to do so. And yet what do we see in Abraham's life? We see moments in which in his heart he becomes gripped by fear and he makes foolish, even wicked decisions. We see moments in which he looks away from God. He fails to trust God. He seeks to get what God has promised by his own power and ingenuity. Abraham was a man of faith, but in this life his faith was still imperfect. Or consider David. David the man after God's own heart. David is lifted up as one of the greatest men of faith in all of the scriptures. And yet back around Mother's Day, we saw 1 Samuel 25, how David almost killed Nabal and every male in Nabal's household out of unrighteous anger, taking vengeance into his own hands. Temptation coming straight from the depths of his soul. We know the story of David and Bathsheba, how David gave in to ungodly lusts in his heart, ultimately leading to having Uriah killed. The fact is, when we look to the New Testament, we are clearly taught that the Christian life is a life of inward battle. Yes, the Spirit of God is dwelling in us. Yes, the Spirit of God is making us holy, but it is also a reality that sin dwells within us, and this thing called the flesh is seeking to oppose God's work in our lives. Listen to Paul speaking to the Christians in Galatia. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul does not speak to these Christians as if they are only spiritual people. And Paul does not speak to these, to these people as if they're only fleshly people. He recognizes that in this age, in this time of living on this earth, Christians are people who are both spiritual, but also fleshly. Now at our core, we're spiritual. That's the new birth. The principal part of who we are is changed. But you know, just because you change the root doesn't mean that immediately the branches and the fruit change. It takes time. And so the Spirit is working this in our souls. Remember J.C. Ryle's quote from last Sunday night? There are two marks of a true Christian, inner peace and inner warfare. If you know Christ, you know this peace that passes understanding But also, if you know Christ, you know what it is to have a battle in your own soul, a battle to obey Christ and not to sin. We could go back to Romans 6. In Romans 6, we saw verse after verse in which Paul is teaching Christians to resist sin in their hearts. And so I trust that you know, both from Scripture and also from your own experience, that indwelling sin is a reality in the lives of Christians. 
Verse 25 sums up the Christian life this side of heaven, right? Verse 25, through Jesus, we will one day be delivered from this. But for now, we serve the law of God with our minds, yet with our flesh, we serve the law of sin. Now here is the implication. Since it is a fact that Christians are continuing to battle sin in their hearts in this life, let us relate to one another accordingly. Friends, let's not only acknowledge that this is true for you and me as individuals, but that this is true of each other. That I need to understand that you as a believer are in this battle, and it's a hard battle. And so we need to live with one another in an understanding way. When a fellow believer gives in to a moment of anger or gives in to a moment of deceit and sins against us. We ought not to be appalled, taken aback. Can you believe that so-and-so would do that to me? Dear friends, look around this room. Each and every one of us who are Christians is still in this battle. Through Jesus Christ, we will win the war. Sometimes we lose battles, don't we? It is a fact. If you hang around a Christian long enough, he or she will sin against you. Churches are not made up of perfect people. Churches are made up of people being made perfect, but they're not there yet. This doesn't mean that we're hypocrites. We're only hypocrites if we pretend like this isn't true. We're only hypocrites if we start acting like we're all a bunch of completely holy people with nothing wrong in our lives. We're only hypocrites if we relate to one another as if there is no struggle in each other's lives. Now, Herman, let us never do that. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, a local church is a gathering of people who are to be honest with one another. We need to acknowledge that each other is fighting sin. We need to live with compassion towards one another. We're to be actively involved and supporting one another, helping each other in this fight. We are to be praying for one another. We are to be offering up words of encouragement and admonishment to one another. We are to be together in this war against indwelling sin. And by the way, since indwelling sin is a reality, we must be eager and ready to forgive one another. No local church will have any genuine measure of peace and unity if the members are not ready and willing to forgive one another. Think about how our God loves us. Think about how many times we fail to treat Him and honor Him as we should, and yet God continues to care for us. He continues to be patient with us. He continues to forgive us. This is the kind of radical love that we are to have for one another in our church. This is the kind of commitment we're to have towards one another. 
We need to be able to say to each other, brother, sister, though in a moment of, 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 of inward battle you may curse me, yet I will still love you. I will still love you. I will not stop loving you. There will be a time when you will be thoughtless in something you say. There will be a time in which I will fail to care for you as I should. There will be a time when one church member will fail to guard the reputation of, a, of another. There will be a time when one church member will, will break a promise that was made to another church member. Friends, we can either let those sins that we know are coming disrupt our lives and bring disunity into, into the church. Or we can say up front, hey, we're in this together. We will forgive and we will encourage and we will pray. For one another. We will be one in this battle. Now please understand. I'm not saying that we are to excuse sin. I'm not saying we're to treat sin as something small or unimportant. But it does mean that, that we're to look upon one another not in a judgmental way. Right? The particulars of your struggle might be different than the particulars of my struggle, but let us never look down upon one another as if I am free from struggle and you're still fighting. As if I am somehow holier than thou, better than you, or you're better than me, and we treat one another in this judgmental way. Folks, God forbid that ever happen. It does encourage your pastor a lot that I get to preach on these things, in a, at least in a season where I don't feel like these things are happening in our church. I'm sure at some place they have to be. We are sinners here. But I, I don't see this happening. But I'm always just knowing because of who we are, they're going to come. So let's, let's be ready to love and forgive and be together as a church. So that's the reality of indwelling sin. Number two, let's look at the essence of indwelling sin. Um, what is this sin that dwells within us. What, what is indwelling sin? What are we talking about? In fact, just ask yourself this question. If, um, if, a, if a third grader comes to you and asks, what is indwelling sin? How would you answer that? What, what kind of a definition would you give? You see, normally when we talk about sin, we're talking about an actual transgression of God's law. We're talking about an act that was committed, right? He stole something. He sinned, right? But when we're talking about, when we, when we talk about indwelling sin, we're speaking of sin in a different way. We're speaking of sin almost as a force within us. Sometimes it's referred to as the flesh. Sometimes it's referred to as our old man. Sometimes it's referred to as our sinful nature. In verse 23, Paul actually speaks of indwelling sin as a law. The idea seems to be this, that just as God's law is His moral will for us, there is another law, another will within our hearts. And this is the law of humanity, the law of our old man who is fatally wounded but not yet dead, still wanting his own way. And so there is a real sense in which the Christian is a divided man, a divided woman. It's almost as if there are two competing personalities within us. But by God's grace, the spiritual personality 
the one that desires to do God's will. This is the one who, who we are at root. This is the one that is growing. This is the one that we will be in all its fullness in heaven. And this fleshly personality that remains within us, it is dying. One day it will be dead. Spurgeon spoke about this mystery, and it is a mystery. But Spurgeon spoke about this mystery in this way. He said, I hold that in every Christian there is two natures as distinct as were the two natures of the God-man, Jesus Christ. There is one nature which cannot sin because it has been born of God, a spiritual nature coming directly from heaven, as pure and perfect as God Himself, who is the author of it. And there is also in man that ancient nature, which by the fall of Adam hath become altogether vile, corrupt, sinful, and devilish. And there remains in the heart of the Christian a nature which cannot do that which is right any more than it could before regeneration and which is as evil as it was before the new birth. A sinful nature that is altogether hostile to God's laws as it ever was. A nature which, as I said before, is curbed and kept under by the new nature in a great measure, but which is not removed and never will be until this tabernacle of our flesh is broken down and we soar into that land into which there shall never enter anything that defileth. I think it's important that Paul refers to indwelling sin as a law within us because in Romans 8.2, just a few verses, Romans 8.2, Paul uses the phrase, the law of the spirit of life. And there it is clear that the kind of law Paul has in mind is a kind that is active and powerful, a mighty force at work within Christians. The law of the Spirit of life is the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, moving us to do God's will. And so since that's how he uses the word law there, it helps us make sense of what he means when he says that indwelling sin is a law within us in verse 23. Indwelling sin is a will that moves us, that compels us, that pulls us to do the opposite of the will of God. Speaking of indwelling sin as a law also helps us to understand something of how indwelling sin works on us. All laws seek to compel us to act a certain way. And laws compel us to act a certain way through the promise of either blessings or curses. So, for example, our nation has laws against stealing. If you are convicted of theft, there are certain punishments that will come upon you. You'll pay a fine or you'll go to prison. And this is a kind of curse that the law brings on those who steal. And the goal of those penalties is to motivate you not to steal. There are also laws that promise benefits for certain behaviors. So, for example, right now, the current law code encourages U.S. citizens to buy hybrid cars, right? There's the establishment of an alternative motor vehicle tax credit. So, it is, if you go out and buy a hybrid car, the government's going to reward you for doing that. Well, in the same way, uh, this is how laws work, through, through blessings and curses, through promises to entice you to act a certain way. That's how indwelling sin works. Indwelling sin compels you 
towards certain wicked behaviors using these promises of blessings and curses. Indwelling sin makes a promise to you. Do this and you will have pleasure. Do this and you will be better off. Do this, or better yet, don't do this and you'll be miserable. Right? In Hebrews 11, we read of Moses, that Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The idea was that Moses' flesh brought him certain temptations. As the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses could have set himself up with royalty. Moses could have enjoyed all sorts of wealth and power in Egypt. You can imagine how Moses' flesh must have tempted him. Why risk your neck standing up against Pharaoh? Why put up with these grumbling, complaining Israelites? That was going to make you miserable. Come on, Moses. Think about what you could be experiencing now. Think about the ease of life that you could have. Indwelling sin comes with these forceful ideas, blessings and curses, if you'll just do the wicked thing that indwelling sin wants you to do. Indwelling sin promised pleasure if Moses sinned, pain if he did not sin. And yet we're told that Moses was looking to a better reward And therefore, he denied his own flesh, and he obeyed God. So there is mystery here, but I think we can say this much about the essence of indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is a powerful force within us, remaining from before our conversion, that compels us to do the opposite of the will of God. And now here's the implication. If that's what indwelling sin is, let us learn to recognize this, to recognize it. And let us learn to deny it. Let us learn to mortify it. Let us learn to kill it. You're having a normal Monday morning, and you're about to pray. And something inside of you says, let's not pray this morning. You have a lot to do today. Let's get going. There's no time for prayer this morning. And you begin to feel in your soul this pressure, this pressure not to pray. In fact, there's a sense in which taking time to pray feels like going against the grain of the pressure in your heart because there's suddenly this feeling on you. There's so much to do. There's so many things on you. Why are you going to stop and pray? Get going. And so there's almost a sense of pain and having to make yourself stop and pray. It's indwelling sin, compelling you to do the opposite of God's will. Well, when it rears its ugly head, its ugly head, you need to identify it. You need to identify it quickly. And then what do you do with it? Well, first, how do you you identify it? Test the compulsion you are feeling, right? Whatever it is that suddenly wells up in your heart, pulling you in one direction or another, test it according to the will of God. If that compulsion that is on your soul is against the will of God, you can know that you're dealing with indwelling sin. And so then you spring into action upon it. You take control of yourself by speaking with authority to your own soul. Know my soul. 
I know you're trying to make me feel as though praying is a burden, but my God says I must pray. I am completely dependent upon God. If He doesn't bless me today, nothing I do will matter anyway. I must pray. Yes, I have lots to do today. That just means I have lots to pray about. Let me get to praying. Did you ever talk to yourself that way? This is what self-control is. Remember Romans 6, what is the the defense in the war against sin? It is self-control, self-denial, shaking yourself by your own shoulders and saying, self, wake up. God has told you what you must do. Do it. Rather than giving in to the, the fickle feelings of your heart. In his book, The Enemy Within, Chris Lungard has a, a great quote from G.K. Chesterton. We're almost done, but this is good. Chesterton once said this. If a, he was sitting in a restaurant. If a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant now, there is no denying that he would have great power here, but I would be the first to rise and assure him that he has no authority whatsoever. See, this is how it is with indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is powerful but it has no authority over you whatsoever. Christ has broken the bonds that held you captive to indwelling sin. So when dwelling sin begins to come in like a rhinoceros into your heart and start trying to wreak havoc, you should be able to stand up against it and say no more. I picture that scene from Lord of the Rings where Gandalf stands up against that demon from hell and says, um, what, what, what does he say? You shall not pass, right? You will not get beyond me. I am stopping you here. Sometimes we have to do that to these feelings that indwelling sin brings. I will not do your bidding. I am Christ. He is mine. I will do His will, not yours. Church, do you know this battle? Do you know these moments that I'm talking about? You have to shake yourself like this. If you've made it a habit of giving in to your flesh in certain situations, you will find it even harder to rebuke it. Once you've gotten into a pattern of giving in to some temptation, changing that pattern becomes very difficult. So perhaps you've often listened to indwelling sin when it told you that you were too busy to pray. In fact, perhaps you now seldom actually pray in the morning because you've grown so accustomed to listening to your flesh in this matter. That means you will need to take special care in fighting indwelling sin on that issue. You will need to pray for God's help. You will need to fill your heart and mind with what God's Word says about that issue. You may even need to enlist some accountability. But whatever it takes, look to Jesus for help and take action against indwelling sin wherever you see it. You know the old saying, if you give it an inch, it'll take a mile. So let me close this morning by just reminding us of the big picture. This battle would not even be happening in our lives had God not opened our eyes to our own sinfulness and His own holiness. It was God who first showed us our sin. It was God who showed us the way of salvation. And dear friends, let us never tire of saying it. We are not made right with God by fighting sin. We are made right with God by resting in Jesus Christ. There is our salvation. Jesus is our righteousness. 
He has done everything necessary to secure our right relationship to God and to guarantee that we will one day be with Him in heaven. But having been made right with God through Jesus, we now see what Jesus is doing in our lives. The big picture right now is that Jesus is making us holy and He's doing this for our sake and the sake of those around us and the glory of His name. And we ought to love what He is doing. Yes, in the moment the battle is hard. Yes, the battle against indwelling sin is tiring. But there should always be a sense of joy attached to it. Christ has guaranteed you the victory. And every battle we win makes us a little more like Jesus, a little more useful to Him. What's more, it's not as if we're in this fight alone. We have each other, and we have our Savior, who gives us the strength, and through His Word teaches us how to fight well. And also remember, this fight is temporary. It will soon end. And the benefits of this fight will be enjoyed for all eternity. So let us be sober-minded. Let us put on the full armor of God. Let us fight with all our might, looking to the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ. But let us fight with joy and with peace. So thankful for the grace that has brought us into this war. The grace that has made us soldiers in this war. Friends, don't forget... We are surrounded by thousands who aren't even in the fight. They don't even know why we're fighting. They are so blind. They are so enslaved to their sins. They are so hardened towards God. They don't even know there is a battle. They live in the flesh every moment of every day. They they indulge in, in every passion The path they are walking on leads to hell. They are spiritually blind, spiritually dead. God has made you awake. God has made you alive. And this journey, though hard, leads to heaven. So as hard as it is, find joy, find peace, rest in Christ. What grace to be in this fight. Let's pray.